0: Welcome to Early Learning Journeys. Jeff Johnson here with Tamar Jacobson. How are you doing, Tamar? I'm
1: doing great. So nice to be with you again.
0: I'm glad we're together again. We've got, we've got somebody else on the hot seat today. Mike Huber is with us. And uh, compared to other guests we've had, I I I don't know as much about Mike. I'm gonna I'm gonna read his uh, his his listing on his about page on his website. Um, and and then we'll dig into Mike and see what we can unpack about him. It, it says, uh, Mike Huber, Master of Education, is the author of Embracing Rough and Tumble Play and several picture books, including The Amazing Eric and Bree Finds a Friend. And that's all Mike's got on his About page. Oh, so, that's um, pretty much
2: it. There's nothing you know. else.
0: So I'm, I'm hoping, I think there's more, um, my experience with Mike is that he, he won really knows his stuff and, and walks the talk when it comes to early learning. And he's also a really thoughtful guy about these topics. And, um, I'm really, really excited to, to see what Mike has to say. So Mike, we start at the very
2: beginning. Um, what was your infancy like? So when I was about 13 months, I think 14 months, somewhere in there, uh, I had encephalitis, which was life-threatening. I was in the hospital for a few weeks. Um, I still have this vague memory of going, not like having a um, Fisher Price barn. If Fisher Price is the toy company, like this barn handed to me, it wouldn't have been the first visit to the hospital, but it, you know, but still it was like probably two and a half. But after that so i don't remember much else about infancy but then i didn't speak outside of my own home after that right so if we were in public i never spoke well, how long um, and for how long oh well i have the story for that one so so probably the person is the most besides my mom the most influ- influential person for me in early childhood education is my kindergarten teacher, whose name I can't remember offhand. Um, but it was probably two months into kindergarten. I still hadn't spoken. And we had these weekly readers, they were called, you know, and it was like this cool four-page or eight-page thing. That I, and for this one, she wrote our names on the front. And so she was just, you know, I'm going to hold it up and then just let me know if it's your name and I'll hand it to you. And so like the fourth name that came up was mine. And I remember watching and didn't say anything. And I was aware of all the other kids, like knowing it was me and like, oh, it's the kid that doesn't talk. And she said, oh, this person must not be here. So she put it, but instead of putting it in the back, it was like four names later, it came up again. And I still didn't say anything. And I was looking around because all the kids are looking at me but I really wanted it cuz the weekly reader was the coolest thing for me at the time. And then a few names later it came up again, and I said it's mine. <laughs> and she just no reaction at all besides oh here you go. And then read the you know, held up the next name. So there cuz that was the thing I was afraid of was too much attention. Right? And so after that I just started talking. You know, just what a brilliant
1: it. teacher! What a brilliant teacher! I know, but can I? Yeah, can I so ask you, and that's I how we approach you,
2: other kids now.
1: Yeah. Can I ask you? Are you making a connection between your um, encephalitis and not talking?
2: I is that what you do? Think? Here? Yeah, I do think that. Um, my first time in public really was suddenly being away from my home for. Several days or weeks, I, you know, I don't actually remember. My mom would be able to tell me. But that that was my first being away from the family. So after that, whenever I was away from the family, it, it didn't feel safe or something. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to describe in adult terms
1: so you, what I might have been ac- thinking. You're not actually aware of that? It's from what people have told you or or you're aware of it?
2: I can remember speaking for the first time like that's very clear to me and and that that fear that I was having at that moment but I don't remember other things besides stories my mom
1: uh-huh. has told me uh-huh.
2: so so I do think there's a connection there and I yeah. you know yeah don't know exactly but it seems to make sense to me that you know the outside world was a place where I was felt horrible um I know, yeah, because they said like I, I was in like a essentially like a waterbed, but it was ice because I was my temperature was so high and things. So I, so I do think there was some, yeah, just fear of or anxiety around other people.
0: and people, people you don't know poking and prodding at yeah. you. And- oh yeah, oh
2: I didn't mention I got two spinal taps during oh. that too. Oh, I'm sure that was delightful. <laughs> So I did have one uh, doctor tell me, well, if you had a spinal tap before 1970, like, like they're still serious, but they were a lot worse back then. (laughs) So, yeah. So that was the other thing. It wasn't just like I was away from my parents. Yeah, they really were poking and prodding me.
1: So I'm Um, seeing that that you're talking to us on a podcast and you've written books and a written book and this and that. So you're kind of over the fear of outside world?
2: Yes, (laughs) I am. But I have to admit that I um, was a quiet kid. Uh Um, My mom always laughs at that because then I became a very uh, um, verbose (laughs) adult. Uh, And I don't know, I guess I got involved in theater in high school. So I'm one of the theater nerds that that broke me out of my shell a bit. And then I was also a a drummer in punk rock bands and... (laughs) And I think that one really changed how I interact. Um, In my early 20s, I made a a conscious decision to try to follow the rhythms of other people. And what I found was when I was talking to someone who was, um, you know, older, like a senior, you know, because I would, I worked retail. And so someone would come to the counter, they'd walk up slowly, hand me something slowly, and I would just slow my pace down and talk to them kind of more what I sensed the rhythm was. And I found that I could talk to people more, right? That then if someone came and they seemed in a hurry, I would hurry too. And and the more I did that, the more I would have these back and forth conversations with people. Um, we so. we got we to gotta go back to the drumming. Um, <laughs> you know course,
1: we, <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. We, we can go back to the drumming, but I just want to say that... Um, I I have often talked about the fact that we have to learn the language of a family Mm -hmm. um, and it's not necessarily Spanish or Greek or whatever. Right, right it's those things that you're talking about. So that's really interesting that you got that through drumming and the rhythm. Sorry. Yeah. I have another
2: story about where I might have that too.
0: But sure, sure. That's interesting. You want to know more about the drumming. um, I want to know more about what Mike looked like as the drummer in a punk rock band. What was the hair situation?
2: I had hair. Um, It was always short. Um, I stopped combing, combing my hair in seventh grade, I think. But it was always fairly short. So it didn't. Really matter, and it kind of just stuck up. Um, I did not do like anything that punk rock, besides just no no eighteen hair.
0: inch uh, razor
2: blade mohawk N- or anything. No like mohawk. That. Um, I did bleach my hair for a while, mostly because I had really dark hair, and I couldn't dye it any other color. So I bleached it with the intention of dyeing it, and then got tired of the process and just left it. It was <laughs> too much work, <laughs> and then it became the the you know, my look for a little while. Um, and any safety pins through the nose or ear? No, no, they're definitely, well, what I would do is, so in high school, I had a job delivering newspapers. And so I made a deal with my mom that I would buy my own clothes with the money I made, but I got to choose the clothes. And so there was all thrift store things. So it's you know, ill-fitting pants and shirts and things. And, um, you know, so not, not that sort of, I did have a leather jacket for a while. Um, and actually I remember when I taught in New York, um, this, um, one dad came up to me, Puerto Rican dad, and just said, I just want to tell you that, you know, I've seen how you interact with these kids and it's great. And I also know that some people just look at you and think that you wouldn't know how to care for kids (laughs) is that I get the same looks, right? They don't think, uh, you know, I could be a a caring dad that's, you know, at home and with my family because of who I am. And I, th- I think that's probably true for you. Um, so there was definitely like a, a connection. That's cool. Where where yeah. did you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Oh, I lived <laughs> there for 17 years. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't remember seeing you there. <laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up in Buffalo and lived there until 1989. And then I came to the Twin Cities
1: Ah, well, that's
2: why I came to Buffalo in 88. yeah, uh, oh, just missed each other. Buffalo couldn't <laughs> handle both of you at the
0: same time. So, uh, Mike, I'll need, I'll need you to send me any uh, photos or, or recordings of the punk rock days, if you have them, that I can uh, append to this episode, because I can okay. that's awesome. Yeah, I should. Yeah, I will. Um, and and um, so what kind of, once you started talking in kindergarten, what kind of student were you in the
2: elementary years? So I was, well, one, I was at school every day. I didn't miss a day of school until, I forgot when, like middle school sometime. And actually, the most the most days I missed of school was in high school when I got suspended, but that's a different story. Um, yeah, so I was really interested in reading, especially, and... In first grade, my teacher did a thing called Brown Eyes, Blue Eyes, um, which I think was one another one of the most influential things that happened to me because it was we were in a suburb of Buffalo. So our school is pretty much all white. And we did this activity um, where um, I'm, you know, I'm not the best person to describe it, but especially because I was six when it happened, but essentially the teacher did spend a lot of time explaining the activity and that this is not something you play at home. We're going to talk about what we're learning from it. All you know, all these things, but then it was essentially setting up, like all the blue eyed kids got to like, like if they wanted to play with something and it was a brown eyed kid playing with it, they got to say, no, I I want to play with that. Or, and it really did. I mean, it was only like half a day. And it really like kids suddenly became very, um, I don't know, mean in a way, you know, and then it flipped in the afternoon and then the brown eyed kids, you know, and the blue eyed kids. And for me, I I think it stuck with me. Like the, the, what, what the lesson was supposed to be really stuck with me that I always sort of felt empathy around people who might be an outsider and, um, you know, I've since learned, I'm never going to know exactly what people go through or what they're doing. But again, kind of that same idea of the um, finding the rhythm of people, or or the language of of families. Um, I think that's where I really slowed down. So in college, I would end up being the only guy in a women's studies class, and the only white person in a African American theater class, and you know, just learning about cultures, because to me, it was like, well, I don't know anything about this, I should take a class on it. And finding myself in these positions that as a white person growing up in the suburbs, I didn't find myself in. But I think it really went back to that first grade experience of just kind of, I don't know what I'd call that, like, sort of having some, like I said, empathy, like it just really deep inside me of like, oh, that something there isn't right. So
1: And, you know, I'm sure it spoke to you in a deep way because as a very young child, you didn't talk. And so, you know, people must have looked at you sometimes because yeah, you were not talking.
2: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't so. really put those two together before. But, yeah, that was still definitely with me that I was that kind of weird quiet kid.
1: Isn't it wonderful? I mean, I was marginalized when I was young. And it's so helpful afterwards to, to understanding and accepting all kinds of other people.
2: Yeah. And certainly it can go the opposite way for some people, I think <laughs> for sure. a sense of rage or, or um, I was out, I didn't have control and now I will, you know, <laughs> by controlling others or something. But so yeah, what, no. do
1: think, what do you think makes you different and that you don't go in that, that you didn't go in that direction?
2: Um, I'm definitely reflective. And I don't know if that was because I was a quiet kid. I remember my one uh, grandma referred to me as being a little bit like a lawyer where, family would have a conversation I just sat there for a while you know and then I'd finally say something but it you know was I guess insightful or whatever you know she was talking to me when I was like 13 about that but you know so even so I think part of it is I'm always reflecting on either what I'm experiencing or what other people might be experiencing and I guess also just my love of especially film like fiction film but reading also a bit, but I know so many nerds that read so much more than me that.
1: Well, you're an observer, obviously.
2: Yeah. And that's my favorite thing, actually, is storytelling. Like when people tell stories about their, their actual life, whether it's, you know, if I'm on the bus or an airplane and someone's willing to talk, I try to tell if they want to be left alone or if they want to talk. But if someone starts talking, I will have a conversation with them and, you know, find out what it's like to be um, you know, living on a dollar or two a day, or you know, whatever, visiting from Germany and living in the United States for two months, whatever. You know, I just always, I, I just want to know more. So I, I wish
0: I, I'm jealous. I wish I could be that person because I put in my earbuds and pretend to be asleep. I, I, I just that's too much human contact for me. I mean, seriously. Well, I, I, and I, wish I wouldn't I could. talk
2: to you if I saw that. I wouldn't. <laughs> I, you know, I, I definitely read people, or most of the time, I'm sure that I've messed up, but. Um,
1: but you know, I, don't... Pip, I, I, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, you're doing these podcasts.
0: Well, this is different. We're not in the same room. <laughs> I, I No, seriously, on a plane, I would find that so emotionally draining that it would it would just suck all the energy out of me for wherever I was going. It, it really would. And I, I don't like that about myself. I'd rather be able to do what Mike says he does. But uh, that's that's totally where I'd be at. Just... <sighs> and you yet-
1: and yet you're so interested in other people. From a distance. Okay, got it. <laughs> Only you go and visit them in their places. Uh, you know, never mind.
0: Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's <laughs> the old Jeff. So
1: you, were, we'll do you, you, you another
2: time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Someday, someday I'll be on the show. Um, so were you, were you good at doing school? Were you good at the hoops? Yes. And,
2: yeah, and in fact, I have a sister who's just like 18 months younger than me, not even 16 months younger than me. And she was not good at school, and it always drove me nuts because I thought she um, was smarter, or at least as smart as me, maybe smarter. Uh, definitely tried harder than me, and yet I found it easy to, like, in some ways. When I take a test, I was often trying to figure out, well, what are they trying to do here? They're, you know, like they're trying to give this answer that makes it sound like this would be the answer, but it's actually this one. Or, you know, I I found myself doing that all the time where it was more about the thinking about what the person making the test was doing rather than the content. Um, So, yeah, so I was generally good at school, but then, um, in fact, I remember I was tested for a gifted program and they had this like, I don't know, standardized test you were supposed to take And I did, it was like 60 questions and I did it in like 10 minutes or something because I just was like, I don't know what this is. And I did not get into the gifted program, but it was that thing where I definitely had a love-hate relationship with school, I guess. Mm -hmm. And generally it was more like having relationships with teachers, especially. And then in high school with um, kids as well, mostly theater or art nerds.
0: Aside from that kindergarten teacher, were there any other teachers that uh, that stand out as either highly positive influences or or the opposite of that in your life?
2: yeah i mean i uh, I would say that one of my favorite teachers was my physics teacher that nobody else seemed to like. but what I liked is he would tell stories to explain physics concepts, and I can still remember the stories even though I didn't go into physics and can't, you know, could I couldn't do like complicated physics, but I remember the basics of angular momentum from his discussion about his college roommate having a motorcycle and discovering that once the motorcycle stops, it will fall over. But as long as it's, the wheels are spinning, they stay upright. Right. You know I mean? Like pretty obvious things, but the story was kind of funny, you know? Um, and he, so he always told things in stories. So when I started training, other early child care, uh, childhood education folks. Um, I really used the same thing, right? That I try to mostly explain things through stories, because, and I know it's not like not everyone learns like I do, but I feel like you can engage with a story more than like the word cognitive development or something.
0: Yeah, I think we're still, I mean, we still got those 10,000-year-old hunter-gatherer brains that are kind of wired to sit around the campfire, even if it's on Zoom, and right. share stories. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So when, was there any any time in those, those, uh, those school years that uh, you started thinking about early learning as a thing? Uh, did you do any babysitting, any of that kind of stuff? I didn't at or- all,
2: and this is the part I... I neglected to say my mom, when I was in high school, my mom started doing um, family childcare. Oh. I guess when I was actually in middle school to start and I wanted nothing to do with the kids. I would get home from school, go upstairs, turn on my stereo, put on headphones. Cause otherwise my mom would complain. Um, but the, th- the other thing about my mom is in the basement, I had my drum set. And so after all the kids left and we had dinner, I would be practicing with you know my high school punk band or whatever my mom sort of put up with the noise. She put up the noise of young children in the daytime and of me and my older brother um, in the afternoon or in the evening. Um, but I really didn't have an interest. It's kind of funny. Um, never occurred to me that I'd be teaching young kids. My, yeah. No, I'll just say it that way. <laughs> so
1: how did it happen?
2: Well, um, so first I got my bachelor's degree in American studies. Uh, so totally different. Then I moved to the Twin Cities. And I needed a job. And there was this whole group of uh, people in punk bands that worked at a childcare care center. <laughs> um, it was great. It was... Um, oh, the children... Well, so the staff was um, almost completely either white punk rockers in their 20s or um, black women in their 40s. (laughs) And in Minneapolis for that age group, this was a while ago now, but um, those 40 year olds all went to the same high school because there was only one high school that black children went to um, back, I guess it would have been in the 70s um and so we all like and then so if there was a concert the night before you know all the white kids would come in like oh my god you know <laughs> stay up too late or you know um and then or there was some event that all the you know black <laughs> people went to and so you could always tell who oh well what did you guys do last night i can tell them, you know you're all tired today what happened but there was something kind of cool about how he was we kind of had each had an in-group and yet like we, you know, got to know each other and we go to each other's events a bit. And, um, you know um, in fact uh, in my picture books, the teacher Regina is named after um, one of my first like mentors as a teacher, Regina. So, so when all you
0: young punks were, were working on this early learning program did you did you get to have the your your punkish look at work or did you have to yes. tone it down
2: yeah actually i remember there was a discussion about um dress codes uh-huh. and it was essentially I'm trying to remember what they deciding it was pretty uh pretty open though we'll just say it that way right that you could have rips in your clothes. You could have, you know, leather jackets, whatever. I think, I think it was like you couldn't have studded things because that, you know, if kids put an eye out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whatever. <laughs> I, um,
0: I, 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 yeah. I like that. Back in back in my center director days, and this is work. This is running a childcare center for. I mean, under the umbrella of the Salvation Army, right? And I had this this young girl come in. Um, she's going to college, and and she is totally punk. She's she's got the multicolored hair, the army jacket, and the the pins. And uh, there were safety pins in her ears sometimes. And and um, I I had to convince two layers of bosses above me that we should hire her and let her show up for work as herself yeah, um, because she was amazing and it took a lot of convincing to, to, to get them to allow that. And, and still, I mean, uh, Heather, the early childhood nerd, she talks about this, that there's, mm-hmm. there's people that are still worked up about things like tattoos, even in 2021 um, for early learning employees and just getting decent people to show up is is hard and and yet we 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 fret and worry about how they how they look when they walk in the door so much
2: yeah and I think Heather does such a great job of talking about what about the families that look like that too like yeah yeah absolutely I actually I I actually um there's a teacher that I work with right now that has a tattoo on her ankle and there was this child having just a tantrum just all out and she was sitting on the floor with the girl and just you know they're just kind of Come And I came over with some crayons and uh, some paper. And the girl like picked up the crayon and started coloring. And then she just looked at the tattoo on the teacher's ankle and just started telling a story about, it, it was like a sun and a moon and things. And I made a comment um, and she just said, oh yeah, she does this all the time. It's one of the ways she calms down is to tell a story about my tattoo. <laughs> so That's yeah, we, we yeah, we definitely lose out when we, don't accept people for who they are. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the whole idea of what we try to do with everyone else. Why not do it with your workers? Absolutely. So in those, those
0: first days you're working at the center, what ages were you working with and were you, were you good at it?
2: Um, <laughs> I actually do think I was good at it for, well, because I remember on my way there, I was like, what am I doing? I don't know. I've never talked to a kid. (laughs) Like, what do I do? And so I walked in and they were eating lunch. Um, I think I was covering like nap time or something, uh, the first time now I can't remember exactly, but you know, just covering breaks. So I was only going to be there like for a little while and then, you know, do some sort of training with the director or something. And I just come in, I'm not sure what to do, what to say. And this one kid just turns to me and said, what's up? And it was just so like <laughs> laid back. It's like, oh, not much. I'm just my first time here. It's like, oh, we're eating lunch right now. You can go in the kitchen and get some if you want. And it was just like, oh, right, they're just people. <laughs> um, and I do think my punk rock training—I like to say that, and so a bunch of the punk rockers I knew were already there, but that the noise never bothered me because I sometimes I see early childhood uh, work uh, workers like. Like, when it gets loud, they get uh, short with kids, to say, to put it nicely. And for me, it was just like, well, yeah, when you're happy, what you do is you're you're noisy, right? That's like what we do at punk rock shows, too. So I could stay kind of even keeled or whatever word you want to use when the kids were getting upset. And even when they were upset and mad at each other, I could talk to them you know, in a more, I don't know, regulated way or whatever word you'd use for it or calmly because the noise part wasn't making me get um, like tense or stressed. It was just sort of like, wow, you guys are really mad at each other. So those types of things came pretty easily right from the beginning.
1: So do, do you enjoy being with children?
2: Yes, a lot. Um, so, cause yeah, now I've been doing it 29 years 29 and a half years getting close to my 30th anniversary with kids with working with children and yeah what I learned is that I can really talk to them and I think even more if I sit and listen it's amazing what they'll talk about or how they'll explain things you know I say I had one classroom for 17 years where It was me and 10 four-year-olds. And there wasn't a single day that I walked into the classroom and knew what was going to happen. You know, that just, I had some things planned of like, oh, we got this really cool new paint or something. I bet the kids will do this with it. I had some ideas, you know, of what might happen. But it never went the way I thought it might, you know. And um, so that just, it, you know, fascinated me. And I worked in like the smallest classroom in the world. So I said, you know, for 17 years, I worked in this, whatever, 25 foot by 20 foot space. And we went outdoors and things too, of course, but that's pretty much where I spent all my time. And yet I never knew it was going to happen. Um, so What? yeah, of- I loved it. What was that? It was an old, uh, so it was a family uh, uh, cooperative childcare, uh, parent cooperative and it had been a corner store like in a in a city you know like a I i't know you call them bodegas in New York City um, but it's just like a corner store that then got converted so my classroom was also the hallway or you know you had to walk through my classroom to get to the next classroom because um, essentially my room had been where they would store stuff and the other classroom was where they used to sell stuff you know like it was the mm-hmm. Um, and then we just switched where the door was. you basically went through what used to be the delivery entrance. Um, and, and it was great, you know, it's like a small place. We all knew each other. Um, and yeah, I just always found it fascinating, just really following the children's interest. The same thing I was saying, how I'm interested in adults. I can listen to an adult on the bus, you know, and even talk to them. So with the same thing with the four-year-old, I don't know what's going through their head. I'd love to find out. I have to follow their rhythm though, or else, you know, if I take it over, then I hear less actually, right. If I talk too much. So, yeah. Yeah. I I got
0: another punk question, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, You said you were, you were good at dealing with the kids that were, were having their emotions because you were used to the noise. But as part of that, I mean, look, I don't have a whole lot of punk experience, but there there seems to be a lot of raw outpouring of emotion. Yeah, in in punk, and so if if you you're used to that on stage, mm-hmm. um, and those kind of things, and so you were you're kind of acclimated to that when these just right. smaller versions of yeah. of yourself were dealing
2: with it. So did that was that did that play a part? I think it's true. And I think it's, I was thinking about this recently um, because my uh, girlfriend did not grow up with punk rock and, you know, was, um, grew up with classical music mostly. And so it's just interesting. We were listening to a punk band and, th- and she's like, so how, like, what makes you like, why do you know this is gr- good? Like, and she said like this singer sounds good to me, but I don't know why, like, what is it? And I just said, you know, punk is interesting because I feel like what, catches me is when there's an anger usually in punk but it's joyful at the same time because they're expressing their anger right like that's the and of course there's always you know people who express their anger in in unhelpful ways but the punk rock that I like and that I listen to it's like everybody's you know singing the lyrics in the audience too because there's something about there's a reason to be angry but if we all just express it then it's this positive emotion right that anger is an energy is um, yeah yeah there's there's
0: there's of- this this social exchange of energy is going yeah, is, yeah. Is kind of what's going on and, and there's there's often a lot of there's a lot of humor in yeah a lot of those songs that people often miss too because they're they're maybe put off by i don't know the appearance the i, I mean they're there, there's a lot, right. there are a lot of things to turn people off to punk, yeah. but there's there's a lot of emotion. There's
2: a lot of energy and there's a lot of humor there to sometimes too. Right. Yeah. And there's certainly some of punk, I think, is that idea of we're outsiders, but then we're going to create something where other people know they're, that we're outsiders or, you know, like they won't like us. Or, you know, there's definitely a sort of um, not trying to. Yeah. Like purposely doing something so other people wouldn't like it or. You know.
0: Yeah. Instead of trying instead of fitting in, it's, they're, they're trying to fit out. Yeah. There
2: we go. Yeah. It's part of the identity to not <laughs> make sure your parents don't like it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how long did you how long
0: did you stay at this before you decided it wasn't just a part time job to earn beer money or whatever?
2: That right. Was actually yeah. So thing. I started doing it in 1992. And by 94, I think I took started taking a class on child development and you know I, before then I was just doing sort of standalone trainings and things. But then I was like thinking that I might get um, a degree in it or something. Um, but I took one class. I didn't really have any money to take more classes because no, uh, you're working in, you're working in early early earn it. Yeah, it turned out I was, <laughs> it turned out it doesn't pay. <laughs> but then I moved to New York City for a little while and ended up working um, for a Head Start program sponsored by Bank Street College. And so then I took some classes there. And then I moved back to um, the Twin Cities and ended up getting my master's in education at that point. Um, although with the amount of pay I have, I'm still paying that off now. Um <laughs>
0: When you took that first job, uh, was there any pre-service training going
2: on or was it just, Hey, here's some kids. Um, there was, and actually the, the person who ran the whole program was, is pretty, uh, you know, she's still alive, retired, but there's like things named after her already. Right. She's just one of those people. So that was one of the things was I was just, I was just, but I was a substitute. And then they had this training week and, you know, she was like, well, you should uh, plan to be at this. So I got like 30 hours of training. Um, I started in February and that was sometime in the summer. I had 30 hours of training and was getting paid for it. Right. It was free for me and I got paid for it. And it was, um, it was specifically around high scope curriculum, but a lot of things around how to, you know, not take over play, how to, you know, kind of allow for play. So there's um, not completely play-based, but at the same time, it was definitely, um, it got me thinking like, oh, like there's something to this or something. I don't know. I got really into the uh, the idea of trainings and then um, trying to think of, I don't actually remember. Cause at some point I suddenly became a trainer which is weird. Like I was just sort of asked <laughs> Just happens I, sometimes. I don't, I can't remember. There was some meeting where, um, the fam, the pair cooperative I worked at was kind of near the university of Minnesota and Augsburg college, which had a, um, kind of pre-primary education program. And then St. Saint- university of St. Thomas, which has a child psych program. And so we'd often have students come to our school. We were sort of, a I should say a lab school that wasn't really a lab school, but we'd often get students there. And so at one point someone from the department of ed was there and then they were creating a training where they wanted something about like just children kind of doing in-depth like study or whatever. And my classroom would just like turn into definitely very influenced by Lily and cats would just, Uh, I remember one time my professor coming to visit me and the room, like there wasn't very much room to sit because there's like the skeleton sitting in one of the chairs and um, all these like things that kids had made of like their like (laughs) lungs with bellows and things like they were really interested in bodies. Um, And so there's just stuff everywhere, you know, and they, um, and so, at one point, someone from the department of vets like, "Oh well, Mike does this stuff. Which you know, he should like help us with you know developing this training." So, um, so that's what I did, and then,
1: emergent, then they were like, "You
2: should be one of the trainers now."
1: Emergent curriculum or the project approach is not yeah. easy to do, and I'm sure that you, if you were doing it well, that's why they wanted you to train about it.
2: Yeah, yeah, did and you I study
1: with Lillian Kess.
2: I never studied with her. Um, I remember t- talking with her once about a ball investigation I did. This is years ago now, because now it sounds silly that we all have our phones with video, but I got some like cheap video cameras. I think they're called like flip cameras or something. I can't remember what they're called now. They're these tiny little cameras, but it was the newer, newest things. And so what we did was we just had all these balls and we try to, it's like, oh, let's try throwing balls. But we had like giant exercise balls and soccer balls. And so kids would be throwing my video them. And then we'd watch the video and they're like, Oh, you know what? The smaller balls are easy to throw. Look, you know, and they'd they'd sort of watch their own video and then change what they were doing um, and things. So I remember telling Lillian, and at the time, you know, it was like video using video with kids was kind of new because it was hard to do or before that, the technology before that was you know, and she was just like, oh, write about that for my journal, and I never did, because I got busy with whatever. I think think that's when I had my uh, child, (laughs) you know, so, (laughs) you know, that fatherhood thing took over. Um, It takes up a lot of time. It does, but um, (laughs) yeah, so I, I don't know. I really liked doing that sort of emergent curriculum, and especially, like, I mean, we always had other things going on. That's one of the things I'd always try to emphasize with people. You don't try to do like something about bodies every day. You just Mm -hmm. have all this stuff and the kids have things that they've been documenting or whatever. They have reference material. So they keep doing it. It's not, I mean, it is a dance. Maybe that's going back to my drummer thing, like of figuring out just how much do I need to, to uh, just get them going again. Mm Mm-hmm you know, and how much I just let them, you know, figure it out on their own. So, uh, yeah, so that's how I became a trainer was just someone sort of visiting the classrooms like, oh, well, you should do this. <laughs> you know, you should talk to people. So, um, What yeah. do you and then like summer-
1: about training?
2: Um, I just like talking. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, I actually do like talking, honestly. I always say like, i because I tend to like, I'll be working all day and then the trainings in the evening and I'm like, oh, I never feel like it. But once I get started, it's, oh, I'll be fine. Um, uh, I like that I generally have my content planned, but I don't have the stories I'm going to tell planned.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So I know in my head, there's like 10 different stories from my teaching that would illustrate this point, but I never know until I'm doing it which story I'm going to use and part of it is when I do if it's a small enough group I'll have them introduce themselves and so then I'll choose stories that seem to fit their situation more um I've never been a family care provider but at least giving stories of different age groups or when there's mixed ages you know uh, or whatever you know if they work in a particular population where their their culture is different than the other culture I'll try to give stories like that so Partly, I like that sort of creativity of um, making points, but also kind of the storytelling aspect, and it being uh, um, in the moment, I guess. Yeah, it that keeps pressure. It, I I it keeps
0: pressure for you as the, uh, yeah. the speaker when you can have you can have those different stories to to slip into different situations
2: too. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's good and to um, have a plan and then to just. Be spontaneous within that plan.
2: Right, right.
1: I like that too.
2: Yeah, and that's kind of what teaching is too, right?
1: Right, <laughs> absolutely.
2: So,
0: I, I, how long did your mom do family child care?
2: Um, oh, you'll love this story, Jeff. I think maybe four years, and basically, in retrospect, she was unlicensed, and it was I don't know the early eighties, something like that, and a kid got hurt and then they were like oh how many kids do you have oh you need to be licensed to do that and then here's the list of things you need to do you know <laughs> in the house to like you know be up to snuff and just so, just nope. them out. <laughs> then she started working at, at the high school, but I was gone by the time she started working there. So I, I was wondering if, if
0: if she was still doing that when you decided this this dude who just uh used to sneak into his uh into the basement to play the drums while she was doing family child care, if she was still doing that when you decided when you started working in that program for the first time. But she no, was no.
2: But my oldest sister is a Head Start teacher, and the sister that's um you know just a few uh, sixteen months younger than me for a long time, was a social worker at schools. She's now at a um, teen uh, psychiatric ward. Uh, but so we all ended up. Uh, then I have a sister who was in theater and my brother who was a painter. So we were How either in the arts or parents? education. What's that? How many children are you? Uh, five.
1: And you're the third?
2: I'm the third, yeah.
1: Uh-huh. I'm the a fourth. child.
2: Oh, Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, so we ended up, there's a lot of educators in my, and the weird thing is my sis, oldest sister and I kind of just, I don't know if adult siblings where we didn't really talk much and then it's like, Oh, you work with four-year-olds, so do I? Like, I don't know. It never occurred to us like that. We actually are in the same field. <laughs> and it was actually my sister's wife at one point, she was doing some research and she said, you know what you and your sister are the most alike as teachers of anyone I've met. And I want to try this like uh, thing out, but you know, your sister's in this Head Start program, everyone's low income. It's in um, Davenport, Iowa, you know, like let's, you know, do this. And then I'm at this parent cooperative. So it's all these white middle-class liberals, you know, let's try it in both places. We'll film both and kind of see how it affects kids. Cause we know the teachers, even though they're different, you two are very similar. Um, and so it was funny. We did this research project and, uh, yeah, it was funny. And, and my sister and I both went to each other's programs at some point. And when I had hair, my sister and I, and no beard, my sister and I looked enough alike where every, all the kids knew we were <laughs> siblings. So, um, yeah, so it is funny. We definitely kind of all got into, um, education. version of that. They're <laughs> not all, but enough of us.
1: How how did your siblings treat you when you when you wouldn't talk?
2: So I can't remember that part. I imagine so my oldest sister was uh tough. She would have been really protective. Probably would have gotten into fights if if it came to that. I don't think she did. But, you know, she would have like she was Um, In fact, she's teaching soccer camps right now. So she's in her late fifties now, but still is one of the like premier girls soccer goalie, like coaches, you know, that doesn't, well, she coaches a team in Davenport. I think it's in Davenport or somewhere in Iowa, but, um, but the summer camps, she's known as being like the person to go to um, for soccer. But yeah, so she was the tough one. My brother, I bet my brother would have been oblivious at the time,
0: <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
2: Uh-huh. not noticed what, you know, whatever. Oh, he's not talking. Oh, and, and the thing is, I talked at home. That was the biggest thing. Uh. So they they only saw it when I was out, if, they went, if we went to the pool or something or the okay. park. So it was only those situations. So I talked with them all the time. And that was another thing I learned about education and the medical world is doctors thought I had brain damage from encephalitis. And my mom would say, no, he does talk. And they'd be like, well, you know, one thing is parents sometimes will be able to communicate with the child, even when they're not really talking. And she's like, no, he talks full sentences, you know, and just not to you, just not to you. Yeah. They wouldn't believe her. You know, they, they took whatever their own word over the parents. Um, So that definitely. um, And that I only know from stories of my mom talking afterwards. Um,
1: so, so in a way you always. were the, the, in a way you were the special child in the house.
2: Yeah, um, at least at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that that wasn't always true. Um, but it, it does remind me that one of my first I don't even know what they called it. it probably is sort of like what we call assessment now, but it would just have these things you know that can I do these skills? And one of the things said, jumps. And it just, the answer was refuses to. <laughs> um, and there, there were a few things like that. Um, so my mom did save those to show me later as an adult. Um, so I'd like to think that I was, you know, trying to monkey wrench the system, even, even at six or even five, left, whenever yeah. they did that. So um, Mike, but yeah, oh, oh, I wasn't special. I wasn't the special one much past that. And the biggest things, my youngest sister was several years younger than the rest of us. And that became like, you know, like whatever she was the,
1: the babe. Yeah. The
2: baby, no matter how old she is, she's still the baby. Right. Yeah.
0: So Mike, you've, you've mentioned uh, mom a number of times, but not, not dad. Is there,
2: what's, what's going on there? Well, it's funny you say that. Um, I just did my first uh, sermon uh, in a Unitarian church yesterday for father's day. And it was a little bit about my dad. My dad owned his own business and worked like six and a half days a week. So, you know, he provided for us, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, I feel like he, that's how he saw caring. You know, that's how he cared for his family. But it also meant that he wasn't really around. Um, So I definitely took some lessons from him. Because uh, he definitely like w- like if we were doing something, it was oh well, just go try, you know. So definitely that idea of taking risks was definitely something my dad um, did. Although my mom did too. My mom once told me, or actually I can't remember. She was telling one of my oh my sister, the one that's just younger than me. there's something that she's like oh I didn't know if I should do this. And My mom said, or I didn't know if you'd want me to do this. Something my mom kind of just like kind of got kind of mad and said, when have I ever been mad at you for trying something? And it was true. Like could never think of a thing, but that, my, that part, my mom and dad both had of just like, go, go try something, you know? So, so I was, you know, performing shows in punk clubs when I was still in high school. And, you know, and I know there's a double standard. My sister, they never would have let my sister, you know, stay out past, you know, 10 o'clock on a school night or nine o'clock, whatever. Um, so although I did actually have my one sister on a school night, she went to a recording session with me to play French horn and I got her home at six in the morning on a school day Mike like, from overnight.
1: Mike, come back to dad.
2: <laughs> okay. Yeah, I am avoiding aren't I? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So dad, he, Mostly it was that he wasn't around. Absent. Absent. And he was an alcoholic. Um, which he was always a little bit drunk, but he was never someone who seemed like out of control. Because I think sometimes when we talk about alcoholics, it's like somebody who just, you know wild tempers or this or that. And, you know, for him, it was just sort of, you know, a little bit buzzed all the time. And if you talk to him at night, he might fall asleep in the middle of the conversation.
1: So unavailable.
2: So unavailable. Yeah, that would be the the way I'd describe it. Um, and then later in life, but this is after I was already in education, he kind of, after he retired and for a little while was off alcohol. He started getting involved in like a food shelf and and things like that. Um, And definitely got more into, I guess, a caring role in some way, not necessarily education, but, uh, but still in that caring role. But yeah. So I think for the most part, uh, I don't know. I, I think in a lot of ways, maybe it was the lesson of, for what I wanted to be as a male, as a, you know, as, as a father, as well as an educator, um, kind of the opposite, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's about, I mean, well, in my teen years, I definitely had the, the angst towards my dad, but I, I don't think it was any more than most of my friends for me. It was around the absence of him, but, um, but at the same time, you know, we'd like, go to hockey games together. Like we did some things together mm-hmm. that whole time, but it was never, um,
1: It's like okay. he never
2: he, no, he never saw me play music, for instance.
1: It's okay. I mean, we're not going to judge him here. But <laughs> yeah,
2: no, I'm just trying to think of how he influenced me. Like was it, was it right. negative or was it positive, right? And uh, I feel like I, yeah, I feel like that I wanted to make sure I was like there and listening and, Um, i don't know where it is uh i think in retrospect i also think he was on the spectrum maybe um and i and my child is that i feel like i gained an understanding of like if people were over at the house he was in the other room he couldn't be there and i have a tolerance of that with kids where other people are like oh come over and play with the other kids why are you by yourself and I've always kind of had that. So that's definitely a lesson I got from my dad. And then when my child was <laughs> growing up, it's like, oh, I recognize this. <laughs> I know I know what to do with this. Um, yeah. So was, is your child he... a
1: boy or a girl? What's that? Is your child a boy or a girl?
2: So they're non-binary. Um and Yeah, very much. I mean, it's really interesting because they knew from three or four years old, like, what is this boy-girl thing you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, they didn't have words for it, but they knew, like, when it was time to choose the cupcake at four years old at a party. And they were, like, I don't think they are blue. And I think it was, like, they had a Mickey Mouse, like, thing on them or a Minnie Mouse. My child's, like, I don't, like... I don't know what this means. I just want chocolate. Like which ones are chocolate? I don't know. But but they, you know, like from so early on. So that's another thing for me like um, these issues around um, gender identity and trans issues and things I've been kind of part of for a long time and I actually facilitate a group for a discussion group for parents of trans children and youth. Every month, so I've talked to you know hundreds and hundreds of parents who've gone through these things. So, um, so gender and gender identity is something that's um, on my mind a lot. And and you know, so I purposely wear nail polish in the classroom just to get discussions going with kids. Not Mm -hmm. just I actually like the look too. Although this, thank thankfully, this is just recorded, right? People aren't going to see. Yeah, as far as you know, the polish <laughs> is kind of chipped. We'll just say it that way. Um, yeah, so uh, oh, I can't. I can't abide by chipped nail polish. I know. I know. You're just like <laughs> can't believe we let this guy on. <laughs> I don't um, care
0: who's wearing it. If, is it ch- I mean, I'll go to, uh, if I'm at the grocery store and like the, the cashiers get chipped nail polish. I'll go to a different like, line. I, yeah, I just yeah. can't. I can't. I can't. Uh, <laughs> was your was, is your dad still around? No, he died a year and a half ago. Okay, so he he he. I mean, how did he respond to the when when your your book got, your books got published and that kind of thing? Was he um, he?
2: Well, in retrospect, he was proud of me. Um, you no, know? he well mostly after he died, all these people. Oh, you're the one who wrote this, book. and they would describe my books. It's like, what? Like the only thing my dad talked about was he thought the author photo I had on the books looked like um, my mugshot. <laughs> and he would always, but I also knew that that was his way of showing appreciation, right? That, you know. yeah. Um, dad and, joke. Yeah, it was dad jokes. And then um, also that there were names of um, a nephew and my child but not my niece. He's like, so he read all the all the picture books, right? Because it's like, um, I noticed, you know, you didn't have uh, her name in there. <laughs> and I was like, well, I... I have to write another book. Yeah, well, that was at the at the time I thought I was going to write more picture books, so that was the name I was going to use, and then I wrote the Rough and Tumble Playbook instead.
1: But that is very fresh for you—only a year and a half that he died.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's where it's. Um,
1: You're processing it.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, uh, but, yeah, in some ways it was interesting to see how me and my siblings were dealing with his last. He had uh, several things, stage four cancer, forgot what the other illness, and then eventually ALS as well. So there was sort of this spiral, and then it was, you know. Us all having to deal with each other. (laughs) There's
1: a book in there. There's a book in there for. There is (laughs) your relationship with your father.
2: Oh yeah, no, there is for sure. Uh, I'm in the (laughs) middle of writing a different book right now, so the idea of taking on another, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, I've got a deadline in two months. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. You're right.
1: This this is a book that can percolate.
2: Yes, that is true. That is true. Let it percolate for the next twenty
0: years, and you'll be ready for it. (laughs) Stuff yeah. sometimes some stuff needs to brew a long time. So how did how did the rough and tumble play book come come about? When did you yeah. start seeing that as a focus and 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 how did that how did that become part of the
2: path? So I was always good with the quiet kids, and I think I kind of know why now that you've heard some of my story. And I had this one year. I told you I had ten kids and just me. This one year where the kids were just really rambunctious um, and I was at a loss. I was a bit of, you know, as much as I did some things like, you know, merchant curriculum things that were kind of innovative or whatever, when it came to rough and tumble play, I didn't know how to deal with it. And I would get upset. And I usually, like I talk about how I was really good at staying calm. I was not good at it that year and I knew I had to do something different and I decided I either had to switch fields or I had to learn about it. And I was going to the NACI conference to present on something around anti-bias. I think working with persona dolls, which was another thing I did. Oh, And then that. Yeah. And then um, I saw Michelle Tannock speak and she does research on rough and tumble play. And it was just the way she presented it. And it was, it was just like, you know, my, the first time someone really said, oh yeah, these, this is, it's great. It's natural. It, these are the things that it does, you know, the, all the positive benefits of it. And I went up and talked to her afterwards for a little bit. And then two years later, so I had one class in between, then I had another class that was the same. I'm trying to avoid using gender terms here, but Both times I had eight boys and two girls. But the second time that happened, I had been doing my research and reading a little bit. And I also met Francis Carlson, who had just come out with a big body play at the time. And so the next time I had this like class of, we had mats, we had, you know, uh, pool noodles to beat each other with. And, you know, basically it's kind of funny, Jeff, because it's the mic, you know, now (laughs) that's when it happened. Right. I just started doing those things. And it was just like all the other ways I connect to kids. It was like, oh, this is just a different way. Like for some kids, I need to hit them over the head with a pool noodle. And they need to hit me with a pool noodle, you know? Like, And that wasn't my nature. When I was growing up, my mom would talk about my brother and sister, the old, older than me, were the rough kids. And I would always like kind of play but get hurt or just watch them play. So it wasn't as natural to me. But then I started doing it and it, It was amazing. I connected to the kids that used to be hard for me. And so, um, yeah, so I kind of created a training around what I was learning, but then I saw Rusty Keeler speak and someone asked, is there just a book that just kind of explains like for, if you're new to Rough and Tumble, what to do? And this training, there was 500 people at the thing and no one had an answer. And so I walked up to Rusty and introduced myself and said, oh, I actually have a book about that. It's like, really? You know? So I said, yeah. And then I left there. My picture books were already out and they were through Redleaf. So then I walked down to the booth for Redleaf and said, okay, I know what book I have to write. And I already <laughs> told somebody that I'm writing it. So, um, and then the next thing I knew, Rusty interviewed me for his book, the risky playbook. And suddenly I was like an expert in it. Um, Although, you know, obviously I did a lot of work. I mean, that's the fun thing about writing books is you become an expert because yeah. you have to learn about it. But it wasn't like the way I played as a kid. I loved tell you know, My I brother and sister, were- I just talked about them. <laughs>
0: I love the way you refer to it as as that 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 kid who needs to be hit over the head with a pool noodle because because so often we don't we don't see those things that need for that that contact and and that action as as a need. It's just right, it's just trouble. And and we shut it down. So taking on that perspective
2: of seeing it as an actual need is yeah, is right. great, I think. Yeah. And it was for me a learning experience, but now I'm sort of the convert, right? So I'm gonna say like this used to drive me nuts. I would go home stressed every day. Mm -hmm. And then when I just started doing it, it was like, it was so fun, you know? And it, it changed me with how, so now I feel like I'm good at the really loud kids and the really quiet kids. Hopefully I meet the kids that are in the middle too, but I've always been good with the kids who are like, they're, they're always going under the table so they don't have to play with a big group of kids or whatever. And, Um, and often I'm now finding that the same kids sometimes are, they do both, right. When they are playing, they're like, got to like be whacking each other and then they need to be left alone. Yeah. And so I remember there was a kid who was kind of freaking out going home. They, and somebody else was picking them up. They weren't expecting it. And it was a you know, it was, you know, kind of like in the other The teacher's like, can you handle whatever? And all I did was I sat down at his level and just kind of, you know, turned my head and he was like, "Ah," you know, you know, whatever. I hate whatever, I hate the nanny or whatever it was. And I just like, you're really upset about this, huh? And then we just like sat there for you know, five minutes while they figured out who was supposed to be picking up and stuff. But that type of thing, like sometimes people get—I think it's because they the adult gets stressed and doesn't know how to interact. And I just went down in his level. I wasn't sure what to say, and that's what I often because they ask me, "Well, how did you know what to say?" I never know what to say.
1: Right.
2: All I know is to sit down, kind of breathe, <laughs> or whatever, and then um, usually emotion is the first thing I'm going to say, or just you know acknowledge like. Boy, that really, I wouldn't say sucks probably with the particular population I work with now, but like, oh, that that's thats too bad. That's, you know, that's um, it's rather unfortunate that's <laughs> or whatever. It, um,
1: I would call that emergent relationship.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it's that thing. And in some ways, that's a hard thing for some people.
1: Oh, well, like emergent curriculum.
2: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, it's the same thing, right? Because you don't know the other end of it
1: right and and could,
2: isn't it something we could all benefit from even as adults
0: having having yeah. some version of mike sit down next to us and, and say hey hey that sucks i just i <laughs> just be and just be in the moment and uh and see how things unfold
1: that's why i still go to therapy for 27 years or whatever because right. i and always it, want that person yeah <laughs> just think like, boy that sucks <laughs> it's called validating feelings yes Along those lines, Mike, you,
0: you mentioned being involved in theater a couple times, and we didn't yeah. really dig into that and so how does how has that influenced your practice? Because you know it sounds like there's that that emotional and empathy and and mm-hmm. and yes and and those kind of things that that come up a lot of times I, I I can see that there's probably some influence there.
2: Yeah, and I'm going to tell you a story to answer that question. So I ran into someone three weeks ago at a farmer's market it. She was a new, well, not new. She has three books out, picture book author. But I was interested. I, like I do, I started talking to her about her books. So, you know, when did you start writing? She says, oh, well, I worked in childcare for a lot of years and then, you know, started writing books. It's like, oh, you know, so we're talking for a while. And then she says to me, wait, did you work in this room just for a little bit? And it was when I'd moved back to the Twin Cities in 1999, I worked in this classroom for one, maybe two weeks. She had just gotten out of college and it started with her first classroom teaching assistant teacher or whatever. And she said, you read caps for sale. And that changed how I teach. And she said, when I saw you read it to the kids and all the kids were um, acting it out, and they were pretending to throw caps at you, and you just. And she said, "I realized I had to use my theater background when I was reading books to kids." I honestly don't remember the story at all. Although I was wearing a cap much like the caps for sale, uh, the peddler in that book at the time, and I, and I just was like, "I'm sure I did like that." You know, I remember like, that's Sounds how I was like, like books me. to kids. Yeah, um, but she said that you know, that idea of using theater. So when you're reading to kids like you or telling stories, which I also do, even what, just when I ask kids to clean up, they don't want to clean up. And I like, like fall down to the ground. Oh no. Or, you know, don't clean up the blocks. Oh, I wanted to do that. You know, and I just get theatrical, I guess. And it's just fun. You know, it's another way of playing with kids. Um, so I definitely use theater in that way of really, um, it's funny to um, exaggerate emotions and it's funny to, or funny is the wrong word, fun. Cause it also, you connect with a person at two levels. One is the, the thing that's funny and we're actually connecting here. And we both know that what we're really doing is just cleaning up or we really, you know, we're just waiting for the bus for the field trip, but you're telling a story until that happens. Like that's always going on, but there's also this other thing that, you know, is fun or, you know, funny. So I definitely use theater a lot with um, uh, just ways to connect with kids, you know, and and part of that too is that it's not all shouting or big things. It's often like whispering, you know, often when I'm telling a story or reading a book, even there's going to be parts where I'm barely audible but at that point, they've already been doing the wild rumpus and things, you know, and now, you know, they can smell good things to eat, you know, from across the, I can't even remember where the wild things are, the lines right now. But, you know, but, but I would get to that point when it was still hot, the last line in the book, I'm going to be saying it really quietly. Because the way the book is, right, it gets really big and then it gets really quiet at the end. Um so part of it, I guess, is that theatrical—the dynamics of theater—and and admittedly, punk rock isn't good with dynamics; <laughs> it just as <does> the loud. <laughs> but but theater is all about the dynamics, you know. Yeah, there's, a, there's to... a little bit of theater in that punk too. Yeah, and well, like, there it definitely might is. all be loud, but there's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there isn't as much of the dynamics for, yeah. for that. Um, that's a piece that I got more from the theater that I did do, um, and. Yeah, so, um, and and with that, most of the theater I did was sort of, uh, I don't know, I guess more artsy. um, As much as I love musicals, I never performed in one. (laughs) Do
1: you think you'll do this for the rest of your life?
2: Um, In some form, yes. Why? Uh, Why? That's an interesting one. So I'm definitely very, right now in my head, Head is very influenced by um, Carol Garbodin Murray's book, Illuminating Care. So, in some ways, I think that's what I think of because I know that I'm going to be in some sort of caring profession or role, even if it's not necessarily early childhood. Because mm-hmm. um, another thing I do right now um, is I work eight hours a week at my agency in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I could see being at a point sometime where I only do that work, but it would still be around how do coworkers get along or how do we get along with our families or our clients or depending what, you know, place I'd be at. I could see doing that, but it would still be about making connections about caring relationships for sure. Like that, that for sure is going to be part of what I do. Um, Cause that part, um, cause I also kind of, I teach a sex education class and we'll be, you know, doing more of that too. And that's with adults, you know, and it's a different thing in some ways. And yet in other ways, it's not at all, I guess. Um, well, because I all mean...
1: adults are children inside.
2: Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, Lydia Bowers, um, has Lydia Bowers been? Oh, anyways, she's a she had been in early childhood, and then she became a sex educator. And
1: I've talked I mean, with her a bit. You, you have she a, had the same
2: thing of like, wait, these things are they seem like so different, and yet it's you know yeah, but you end up you
0: end up with a stack of skills that is is pretty easily transferable to
2: to those other topics. Right, right, and, and they're still just about relationships. Yeah, right? it's still about figuring out how to get along. And that there's emotions involved that sometimes make it difficult, even though in essence, it's still just trying to relate to other people.
1: And and, and what do you do about you and your emotions and your relationships, Mike?
2: Um, So I would say, well, one, I feel like my uh, partner and I do spend a lot of time talking about things as they come up and it's been three years now so it's not this like thing where whatever I had been married for 17 years um and that one definitely got to there were definitely things where we just didn't talk about and then they just kind (laughs) of eventually came out in not so good ways um so you know I, I I know that something might come up obviously but but I feel like we're good at really talking about things as they come up. I feel like mostly through my church at this point, you know, I've like kind of connections there where I can talk about things as they come up. I'm not in therapy currently, but I definitely um, have been in, you know, I do think that kind of, I can't remember exactly what you said tomorrow, but like that, having that person you like validate your feelings validate my feelings exactly yes yeah i feel like i have people who do that right now in in positive ways but certainly having someone who um you know doesn't also know like if it became something where it was um like i remember with the divorce of like oh some of the people i would have been doing this with now are now feeling like they have to choose sides like Mm-hmm. Are they going to li- listen to me about the I don't know. I heard from her that this, you know, mm-hmm. and that's where therapists. And that's when I was, you know, seeing a therapist. Where you needed someone who just had no connection yeah. to anybody um, in my yeah, life.
1: I, I interviewed my my therapist. I, I mean, I needed someone who had a sense of humor to start with. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't just choose anyone. But um, but you know, there's that thing of. uh, needing that sort of separate thing. Cause right now, like I say, like I have people at my church or something, but you know, if it was, if I had issues about things within the church or whatever, it would feel weird. Right. Or right. yeah, wouldn't feel people could truly validate my feelings because they are part of it in some way. Or you
1: well, know. I, I always say if, if we were brought up by an adult, you need therapy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I Someone told my ch- child that, well, your parent, you know, your dad has done his job if by the time you're an adult, you realize you need therapy. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> they said it the opposite way, but I think that, that was supposed to be a joke. That's lovely, yeah. <laughs> so, Mike, talk a little bit about your
0: job now, because you're not in the, in the classroom with kids full-time anymore, No,
2: so I'm uh, 32 hours a week. I'm a coach. I'm a curriculum specialist, so we have 10 days a year that are training days. And so I'll create more like trainings for those, and then each of the classrooms I do a coaching goal every month. Um, to you know sort of like work on something they want to work on, and we try to choose something that's achievable in a month or two. You know, just something small, and then we can like build off of it. And so that's mostly what I do. So some of that involves me going into the classroom and modeling you know, what do you do when a child's feeling this way or or you want to involve more rough and tumble play or whatever, you know, each classroom has different ideas. So I go into a classroom. Well, COVID's been a little different, but, you know, there'd be probably two hours a day where I'd be with kids. I still am, except that with COVID, what I'm mostly doing is bringing, parents aren't allowed in our building still. So I bring the kids from the classroom, to you know the door, the curb, whatever you know, the parents or the reverse, you know, when the kids get there um, so I have a little less time to actually play with kids, but then there's always times when you know the reality of early childhood where oh, you know, teacher got sick in the middle of the day, we can't get a sub in quick enough, so I might end up in a classroom that way, still, but it's definitely a lot less. Uh, I'm mostly with kids for like five minutes at a time or something. So in some ways I'm like the cool uncle or something, right. Where I get to, <laughs> I walk in it's like, Hey, look at this, Mike, come over here. Look what I did. <laughs> and, you know, they just want to show me everything. And, you know, um, uh, today there was two kids who just moved up. They were toddlers and they're actually now in our, so we do like toddlers have their own classrooms and then preschoolers, it's mixed age. Right. So they're like, these two little toddlers are in this um, preschool room now. And they're like, they were running around the playground, looking for monsters. And so they were showing me, Oh, it's over here. So I was just running around with them and following them around. So I got to do that, but that was like 10 minutes or something. So today, well, I had the flat tire in the morning, so I wasn't at work very often today. Um, but, you know, so I, I do go into the classroom a little bit. Um and I think I would have a hard time being an, an admin person that didn't have time with kids. Mm-hmm. That's the part I can't see right now um, doing that, like, you know, where I just never saw kids. I don't well, know. it
0: sounds like it's a good balance for you where you're at now. You've got the, you've got the kids time, but then you've got the uh, the problem solving training side yeah, of it yeah. as well. So it sounds right? like a yeah.
2: good gig to have. Sounds yeah no, I feel lucky. I mean it unfortunately, it's all the way across town, like if it wasn't if it wasn't so good. <laughs> I keep thinking, man, there's there's there are jobs right in St. Paul, but <laughs> they don't have the balance, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, I could get a classroom job and you know make a lot less money and things too, I suppose. And I also like that our agency also has occupational therapy, children's mental health, there's all these other services, and especially because I do the diversity work. I work with people from all the departments. So partly, I mostly I'm working with the teachers or the kids. Mm-hmm. Then I also work with these people in other related fields, and I really like learning. You know about those things, and and so my next book is on inclusion. And I was, was
0: going to ask, tell us a little bit about that. I'm I, I yeah I just, I'm chomping at the bit to
2: be able to read this. Yeah, so I'm using. Uh, what's called cultural humility as the lens for looking at inclusion. So cultural humility started in the medical field with the idea that um, rather than the doctor being the expert and sort of telling the patient what they needed, that the doctor also had to listen to the patient. And especially if there's a cultural uh, gap, you know, disconnect, um, they'd have to find out, so what is the, kind of the patient need, essentially. But really what it comes down to is the idea that the doctor has a culture, the patient has a culture, and you have to be aware of both of them. So with inclusion, what I'm doing is looking at everybody has strengths, everybody has needs, and you have to be aware of your own needs as a teacher. So this idea of inside voice is really just a teacher saying, loud noises make me stressed, so I want to you know keep the classroom quiet. But if you just admit to your need, you like it quiet. These kids over here like to be loud when they're having fun. And then there's probably some kids who also like it to be quiet. And instead looking at, it, so how do we, what do we do in our classroom or our community to allow for both those things? Um, so that's the short and sweet answer to it. But then it requires self-reflection. It requires really knowing yourself and it requires, um, getting to know the kids and being attuned to the children. It's kind of funny because one of the influences was Lisa Murphy telling me about Tamar's work (laughs) and me thinking, oh, you know, that's interesting because this diversity work I'm doing over here, (laughs) that kind of fits in, right? That like, Mm -hmm. you have to be aware. Like if you have this, these issues of needing a sense of control, Mm -hmm. own that. And then know that you're never going to control these kids, right? But they need a sense of control too. And you'll feel more in control if you just let them have a sense of control rather than trying to control them or whatever. I don't know if that actually explains anything that you've written or talked about. But but it was sort of like I, you know, doing this diversity work and then hearing about your work is like, oh, I think this makes Mm -hmm. sense. And so it's an inclusion book that's not written to like special education uh, people, but to general educators.
1: Perfect, yeah.
2: And family child care. Like, uh, you can have, you know, children with autism in your family child care. You don't need an expert around um, to, what you need to do is just be attuned to the child. What does the child need? What do the other children need? And how do you be a community?
1: Do you have a title?
2: Right now, it's Inclusion Includes Us. Um, but I'm not, Totally, like I like the idea of it, but it, it, it's a little too uh, too much of a mouthful.
1: I know that feeling.
2: Yeah, I'm hoping my 17 uh, year old will. My 17 year old is also a writer, oh. and they they usually tell me when I get things wrong. So I'm hoping they can.
1: <laughs> what well, a teenager who
2: tells one. a teenager who tells parent when they get things wrong. I have
0: never heard of that before.
2: <laughs> I should paraphrase it. They're really good. Like I feel like they're going to be an editor or a, a mm-hmm. dramaturg because they will like you know, they love In the Heights, for instance, the musical, and be like, it's good, but, you know, these three songs here, like, they don't make sense here, they should have gone here, or they, you know, and they'll, like, pick apart anything, and tell awesome. you how to make it better, so.
1: Oh, I loved In the Heights.
2: Uh, is available for pre-order yet? Oh, it's, oh. Uh, it's uh, in the theaters, and on HBO yeah. Plus, oh, my book, <laughs> your book, <laughs> I thought you meant In the Heights, um, no, so it should come out October 22, you know, so, so is is that, that? Red leaf again? 14, yeah. And so my hope is to get it out then so that it'll be, I could go to the, the NACI conference and kind of be, so that's why I have to get this done this summer. Although I'm working at a pretty good clip with good. it. It's, uh, it's not as sprawling as my last book. So it's helpful.
0: I, I can't wait to see it. Any uh, any other questions that we
2: should have asked you that we didn't? Um. I don't think so. This is fun because I never, uh, um, yeah, I've never thought about how some of these things relate to, um, how I got where I am or what I did and what I do. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I don't think so. Well, we really appreciate, oh, go ahead, Tamar.
1: I just want to know, did you enjoy
2: it? Yeah, this is fun. Why? It's a, I, why was it fun <laughs> that's a good question because I don't have a therapist right now so I, no, um, um, it was fun because it was kind of putting all these different things together because most people I know know pieces of what I told like very few people know about me being a voluntary mute or um, whatever the current term for that is um, or I guess even the brown eyes blue eyes uh, thing um yeah like it's kind of like different people know little parts of my story but and even the punk rock thing right that not mm-hmm. many people so I've been collaborating with someone who's writing a book about a former girlfriend of mine um right now you know and that's just like weird because it's just it feels like a different field a different place a different you know like a different world and this talk kind of helps me remember that it's not a different world
1: Just like it's together, part of what it,
2: yeah and it's what made it makes me who i am and that's really what we do with kids is be who we are
1: yeah yeah
2: well
0: i i for one am happy that all the things that happen that make you who you are happen to make you who you are <laughs> if if that makes sense, sense mike uh really appreciate it if people want to find if, if they need more mike in their life uh where where do they where do they go
2: they should go they, to a therapist no um, <laughs> so my podcast teaching with the body in mind is available where podcasts are if you subscribed before you have to resubscribe because the was it the slugs or whatever changed there some internet thing uh, or they can go to teaching with the body and mind teaching with the body in and that's my somewhat updated website i am a f- while i'm writing this book i don't know it's you can, gonna you can be a send me like an email from there um I, I yeah you can send me today. an email for sure and and um and teaching with the body and mind also is a facebook page we do not have anything on instagram right now but um
0: do so, you yeah. are you do, I, I know you've got uh, the first thing when i searched today just to check things out it was the first thing was uh, your amazon profile came up so are you, are you active oh, yeah. there that people can reach out through there too
2: Um, I think if you do that, it really just goes through Redleaf. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. And I guess I've been a regular on porch play chats, the IPA USA thing. And today's video is, um, I don't know when this website's over this website, this podcast is coming out, but, um, it's probably hopefully one that'll generate some discussion. So, uh, good.
0: Well, Mike is young enough that we'll probably have to have him back for uh, for a follow up in uh, twenty or thirty years to see where the uh, where the journey continues. Thirty years,
2: I'm older than you. I'll be alive then. I'll be dead. You're not older than me. (laughs) I think I am, aren't I? I'm I'm fifty three. I am fifty two.
0: You're older than me. Yeah, that's what I thought.
1: I'm Uh, older than both of you. I'll be dead.
0: No, you got another thirty or forty years left in you tomorrow. Forty sure 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 there's there's animatronics and cyborg things they can they can download you in a robot or something uh we'll be recording for decades that's the plan um listeners um Tamara's making a face that she doesn't believe me um we'll be back soon with another episode thanks for listening bye bye
2: bye bye thanks mike yeah no that was fun
1: so look, I took a screenshot. Is it okay if I put it up on Facebook? Yeah, for sure. But I can't tag you, can I?
2: Um, oh, because I think we're friends on Facebook. We are? I think so.
1: Oh, I'll look you up.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure, I don't know, at some point, okay. Heather or Jeff or somebody convinced me like, oh, we should be friends. Or, or your name just came up because of the we have so many mutual friends. Uh-huh.
1: Just, okay, good.
2: Yeah, so, so, so do you
1: allow me to tag you?
2: Yes for sure.
1: And you Jeff?
2: Um,
0: Yeah you can uh, I mean. going off Facebook. Yeah well I I quit using my personal page I I looked it up it's 2017 was the last time I posted there and October October I'm shutting down the Playvolution page because I just uh, it's just not joyful anymore so yeah Yeah. that'll be that'll be the last of the social media so I'm given I've got a I've got a download some stuff there that i can put on the playvolution site there's still some stuff that that i can archive there and giving people a chance to get onto the mailing list but then then october 1st it's gone it's just
2: not fun anymore I'm, i'm so bad with social media i mean that's partly why i did a podcast with several people it's like you know I, I need someone else to like put stuff on Facebook or I just don't think of things. And... Well, it, it got to be, it got to be
0: a chore. I mean, yeah. B- yeah. Building up an audience was great, but now it's, it's, it's a chore and. Like I mean, just to keep
2: it going. And to, yeah. yeah,
0: everybody's grouchy and it's, it's no fun anymore. <laughs> the... Or maybe I'm the only one that's grouchy. I don't know. I don't know.
2: Either way, <laughs> keep it fun. I mean, that's the yeah. thing too, right? Yeah, that all exactly. this stuff should be fine. I mean, we stopped doing the podcast for all, almost a year or maybe over a year. And it was like, and we were even like, so are we going to do it again? Yeah. And then, yeah, Ross trying to do his you know consulting thing. Like, Nope, I got to do it. Like I, like I really want to, and now we're, you know, we like each other again. And I shouldn't say <laughs> like it. I mean, but we literally didn't talk to each other for that whole time. Yeah. And it's like, Hey, wouldn't it be fun to get back together? <laughs> I need to change up trying to get the punk band back together. Cause that, that's, you know, that's what you should do. <laughs> oh God. No. But, um, <laughs>
1: well this was fun yeah well, thank I you guys I'll,
0: I'll uh, send you a message when uh when I have the release, release dates that Mike cool excellent uh, I look forward to it
2: yeah, it was really nice evening. to meet you tomorrow yeah and always good to see you Jeff
0: thanks bye-bye. Bye, bye-bye this has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production
2: Oh...